Chapter 7 of The U-Boat Hunters by James B. Connolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Chapter 7. One They Didn't Get. We were one of a group of American destroyers convoying a fleet of inbound British merchant steamers. The messenger handed a radio in to the bridge. We are being shelled, said the radio. Latitude and longitude followed, as did the name of the ship, J. L. Luckenbach. One of us knew her, an American ship of 6,000 tons or so. Another radio came. Shell burst in engine room. Engineer crippled. SOS signals were no rare thing in those waters, but even so, they were never passed up as lacking interest. The skipper waited for action. Pretty soon it came, a signal from the senior officer of our group. The 352nd, let us give that as a number of our ship, was to proceed at once to the assistance of the Luckenbach. The skipper's first act was to shake up the second watch officer, who also happened to be acting as chief engineer of the ship, and to pass him the word to speed the ship up to 25 knots. We were steaming at the head of the convoy column at 18 knots at the time. The first watch officer, having finished his breakfast and a morning watch, was just then taking a little nap on the port wardroom transom with his clothes and sea boots still on. The active messenger shook him up, too. The two officers made the deck together, one buttoning his blouse over a heavy sweater, the other a sheepskin coat over his blouse. Word was sent to the Luckenbach that we were on the way. Within three minutes the radio came back. Our steam is cut off. How soon can you get here? Up through the speaking tube came a voice just then to say that we were making twenty-five knots. At the same moment, our executive officer, who also happened to be the navigator, handed the skipper a slip of paper with the course and distance to the Luckenbach, saying, That was at 9.15. It was then 9.17. Down the tube to the engine room went the order to make what speed she could. Also, the skipper said, she ought to be tearing off twenty-eight soon as she warms up. And she's how far now? Eighty-two miles? Send this radio. Stick to it. We'll be with you within three hours. By this time, all hands had an idea of what was doing, and all began to brighten up. Men off watch, supposed to be asleep in their cots below, began to stroll up and have a look around decks. Some lingered near the wireless door, and every time the messenger passed, they sort of stuck their ears up at him. He was a long-legged lad in rubber boots who took the deck in big strides. His lips never opened, but his eyes talked. The men turned from him with pleased expressions on their faces. There was a little steel shelter built onto the chart house to port. It was for the protection of the forward gun crew, who had to be ready for action at any minute. Men standing by for action, and not getting it legitimately, tried to get it in some other way. So they used to burn up their spare energy in arguing. It did not matter what the argument was about. The President, Roosevelt, the Kaiser, the World Series, any subject would do, so long as it would grow into an argument. The rest of the crew could hear them, threatening to bust each other's eyes out, clear to the skid deck sometimes but now all quiet here, and soon they were edging out of their igloo and calling down to the fellows on the main deck. That right about a ship being shelled by a sub? Yes. Well. They went down to their shelter smiling at one another. 
ship's cooks, who rarely wander far from their cozy galley stoves, began to show on deck. Wardroom stewards came out on deck, a gang black-painting a tank hatch. They all slipped over to the rail and, leaning as far out as they could and not fall overboard, had long looks ahead. And then they all turned to see what 350 seconds smokestacks were doing. There was great hope there. The black smoke was getting blacker and heavier. They were sure feeding the oil to her. The chief came up the engine-room ladder. An old petty officer waylaid him. Doing well, was she, sir? She was. Him. How about how well, sir? Damn well. She was kicking out twenty-eight. Twenty-eight good. And picking up. Twenty-eight and picking up? And the best she showed in her builder's trial was twenty-nine-one? What do you know about her? Some little old packet? Huh? It was a fine day, the one fine day of the trip, a rarely fine day for this part of the northern ocean at this time of year. It was cloudy, but it was calm. There was a long, easy swell on, but no sea to make her dive or pitch. The swell, when she got going in good shape, set her to swinging a little, but that did not hurt. A destroyer just naturally likes to swing a little. Swinging along she went, rolling one rail down and then the other, but not making it hard to stand almost anywhere around deck, except that when you went aft there was a drive of air that lifted you maybe a little faster than you started out to go. Swinging along she went, a long, easy swing, carrying a long white swash to either side of her, vibrating a thousand to the minute on her fantail, streaming out a long white and pale blue wake for as far as we could see and just clear of her taffrail piling up the finest little hill of clear white boiling water twenty-nine they say she was making and still picking up what thirty and a little more left in her what do you know some little baby ha huh? another radio came to the bridge a shell below our water line settling but still afloat and still fighting good work stick to it they said on the bridge and wondered whether it was the skipper or the radio man who was framing the messages. He had the dramatic instinct, whoever he was. Perhaps twenty minutes later came, Water in our engine room, and then, Fire in our forehold, but will not surrender. Look for our boats. And they are now shooting at our antennae. Radios on the bridge are not posted up for the crew to gossip over, but there was no keeping that last one under cover. Shelling their antennae? Well, the mortifying dogs. Whatever you do, don't let em get your antennae, old bucket. Our thirty-knot clip was eating up the road. We were getting near the spot. The canvas caps came off the guns, and the gun crews were told to load and stand by. A chief gunner's mate was told to make ready his torpedo tubes. He was a famous torpedo man. He would stay up all night with an ailing gyro or hydrostatic piston, and not even ask to sleep in next morning for a reward and he had a record of making nothing but hits at torpedo practice. But he had been glum all the trip. He had stayed past the legal hour on liberty the last time in, and the shore patrol had come along and scooped him up. A court-martial was coming to him, and so he had been glum, but not now. He went around decks smiling, with a little steel thing that looked like a wrist-bag, but wasn't. It held the keys to the magazines. Pretty soon he had torpedo tubes swinging inboard and outboard, and between every pair of tubes a man sitting up in an iron seat that looked like the kind that goes with a McCormick Reaper. 
which all helped the gunner's mate to feel better. He stopped ten seconds to tell the story of the new gun crew man who was sent up the yard to the storekeeper for a pair of spurs to ride the torpedo tubes with. There were four guns, one forward, one aft, and two in the waist. They had been slushed down with Vaseline to keep the salt water rust off. Now they were swabbing the grease off. Grease on the outside of a gun does not affect the shooting of the inside, but a gun ought naturally to look slick going into action. Trainers and pointers stood beside their loaded guns, and other members of the gun crew held up shells. The noses of the shells stuck into the deck mat, and the butts resting against the young chests of the gun crews as they stood in line. There was a nineteen-year-old lad who, when I knew him two years before, was doing boys' work in the Collier bookbindery. Now he was a gun captain, standing handy to his little pet, and trying not to look too proud when he peeked up toward where I was. The foretop reported smoke on the horizon ahead. That would be on the Luckenbach. And where she was, the U-boat was. The forward gun was trained a point to right of the smoke. One senior watch officer, now in the foretop, called down that he could now see the ship. Smoke was coming out of her hull. Soon, he reported, shells splashing alongside of her. Those would be from the U-boat. Soon we all could see the ship from the bridge. The foretop then reported the U-boat. She was almost dead ahead. She could not be seen from the bridge, but, directed by the foretop, the gun was trained on the horizon dead ahead. Eleven thousand yards was the range. The gun was one of the latest type, only a four-inch, but a great little gun, just the same. "'Train and fire,' said the skipper. Boom! it went, flame and smoke. We could not see the splash from the bridge, nor could they in the foretop. It probably dropped beyond the submarine, which soon we could see a pretty big fellow she looked with two guns. She had been shelling the ship even while we were running up, and as our first shot boomed out, she let go another shell. We expected her to send a couple our way. She probably carried bigger guns than we did, but she did not. She let go another at the steamer. "'Maybe at the antennae,' said a chief quartermaster on the bridge. "'We shortened our range. "'The gun was trained and ready for firing when a sea rolled up on us. "'The ocean was smooth enough, but the swell was still on, "'a long swell of the kind that does not sputter, "'but walked right up and announced their arrival by arriving. "'This long blue swell rolled up to our bow. "'We were doing thirty knots, and at thirty knots "'a little ship doesn't need a masthead sea to get action.' we went into it head first it came right on over our bow over our forecastle head over the forward gun the shield to the forward gun stood probably six feet above the forecastle deck that wave rolled right over the gun shield there was a cpo standing quite close to the shield he grabbed a vertical rod on the outside of the shield and just managed to hook in the fingers of one hand the sea, all white and solid, rolled over the gun and the shield. The CPO was swept off his feet, but he was a stubborn one and hung on. Behind him was the officer in charge of the firing. When he saw that sea rolling up, there was nothing near but the CPO, so he grabbed the CPO with both hands around the waist. He too was swept off his feet, but he hung on. To the CPO. They both floated flat out on the white roller and the white roller went smash-o up against the chart-house. The chart-house was just under the bridge, and the glass windows had been taken out from the bridge railing so that they would not be smashed by the concussion of the forward gun. 
we were leaning out of these open spaces, just getting ready to laugh at the people below, when Swabo, up the side of the chart-house and through the open spaces, and into our open mouths came the wash of the sea. Another way followed that one, but not quite so high. As soon as it passed, the forward gun was trained and fired. We had been making great leaps ahead all this time. The range now was under 9,000 yards. The foretop reported it short. The U-boat was still there. We still expected her to send one our way. But nothing doing for us. She sent another shell toward the steamer. The steamer had quit firing. No use. The U-boat had simply taken position beyond range of the steamer's guns and leisurely, as she pleased, was shelling her. Our third shell landed close to the sub, and then down she went and wasted no time at it. Before we could train and fire again, she was gone. The sub, as we learned later, had landed fifteen shells into the steamer and wounded nine of her people, of whom three were of the Blue Jacket gun crew. One young Blue Jacket had been hit twice. He was carrying a shell to the gun when he caught the second one, a piece of flying shell in his shoulder. He laid down his own shell on the deck to see how about it, and got hit again, this time in what our Navy calls the stern sheets. That made him mad. He shook his fist toward the sub. No damn German's going to hit me three times and get away with it. He grabbed his shell off the deck and slammed it into the gun breech. Hand it to him, Joe, he yelled to the gun pointer. Joe did his best, but he didn't have the gun. The shot splashed where most of them had, about half a mile short of the sub. Still pouring the black smoke out of our funnels, we leaped toward the Luckenbach and hailed her through the megaphone when we breasted her. She hailed back that she had water in her afterhold and fire in her forehold, and gave us the number of her wounded. Two of the three wounded blue jackets were injured seriously. We could see them stretched out under the gun. We were steaming around the Luckenbach at twenty knots while we were hailing. This in case the sub took it in her head to pop up again and catch us slowed down. We did slow down and stop when it came time to clear away a whaleboat and send it over to the steamer with our senior watch officer and the surgeon with the needful surgical supplies. We continued to steam circles around the steamer all the time they were aboard, with our lookouts keeping eyes skinned for the U-boat. By her manner of shelling the steamer after he had opened fire, our skipper judged she was a tough one. She did show once while we were circling the luck and back. Her periscope popped up about a mile abeam of us. It may have popped up again. It was getting to be a nice little choppy sea, good for sub-work, and no saying that it was not. But we only sighted it once, and then it did not linger. The sea was growing lumpy when the whaleboat came bouncing back with our senior officer. It was right about the luck and back having nine injured, but all would get well. The doctor was looking after them. She was a cotton steamer. The kid who had been hit twice was all right. He was walking around deck with his cap over his port ear and proud as Billy be damned, three times wounded by German shell fire and got away with it. The fire in the forehold? Most of it was from two old mattresses. At least that was all he found. Did you put the fire out? Yes, sir. The steamer's crew were too tired to do any more hustling around to put any fire out, so we got out a hose and put it out. How about that bulkhead? asked the skipper. He hailed that he didn't think it would stand the strain of steaming. Maybe so, sir, but I don't agree with him. I don't see how that bulkhead's going to cave in with all those bales of cotton jammed up against it. 
what the most of them over there are suffering from is the reaction from that three hours of shelling. Everything was looking pretty blue to them, sir. Can he make steam? Yes, sir. Their engineer has two ribs busted in and a piece of shrapnel in his neck and part of his foot shot away. But he's all right. He was lying down when I first saw him, cursing the Germans blue. Then he says, put me on my feet, men. A couple of oilers put him on his feet. I thought he was going to give orders to make steam, but he only wanted to be stood up so as he could curse the Germans a little better. Lying down interfered with his wind. He rolled it out in one steady stream for ten minutes. He was an Italian, or maybe a Spaniard, and his English wasn't perfect, but he could talk like hell. He's all right. He'll get steam up, sir. By and by, they did make steam, and began to move on a course our skipper wigwagged to them. The skipper left the surgeon aboard, and at twenty knots, the 352nd steamed more circles around the steamer. All lookouts, meanwhile, skinning their eyes afresh for signs of the sub. We could make out a lot of smoke on the southern horizon. It was the convoy we had left in the morning. An hour later, the Luckenbach found her legs. Our cripple broke no records for speed, but she was making revolutions, and by five o'clock we rejoined the convoy with her alongside. So here is an eight hours log for the 352nd. At nine in the morning she was responding to SOSing ninety miles away. At five in the afternoon we had her tucked away for the night in the column. The tall quartermaster came up on the bridge to stand his watch. We were in our regular position at the head of the column at twenty knots. He looked back at the fleet. There you are, lucky bag. They must have had you checked up and counted in. A big ship and a three million dollar cargo. This morning, and here you are tonight. One they didn't get. End of chapter seven. Recording by William Tomko.